fun of their neighbors. They joke around. They laugh with their children. They, you know, celebrate birthdays. So, um, you know, there's like this tension, I think, that um, the way that we talk about refugees in this country doesn't leave a lot of room um, for people to be complex, for people to be simultaneously very resilient and able to endure horrible things while also being really human and really just like you. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast about the human story behind refugees. Your hosts for today are Tyler Jackson and Aiden Thomason. Grace, um, first off, we just want to thank you again for coming in and taking the time to um, speak with us. Thank you for having me. Um, so my name is Brianne Grace. Um, I'm a professor here. I'm an assistant professor in the College of Social Work. And a little bit of background about my research. I do research um, in East African refugee camps, primarily, um, and in a East African resettlement in Tanzania, primarily working with uh, Somali refugees. Here in Colombia, I do have a smaller uh, project on torture, um, looking at how um, torture plays out as a social process in refugees' lives. Awesome. Um, So from your expertise, could you give us a legal definition of a refugee? Sure. A refugee is um, a person who has left their home, fled across international borders because of an experience of persecution. Often that's on the, the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, political affiliation. Um, but there are a host of factors now that are considered within the international legal definition. Where do many of the refugees today come from? Okay, so I mean, so there are a number of protracted refugee situations, meaning refugees who have been outside of their home country um, for five or more years, mm-hmm. often 20 or more years. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about Palestine, for instance, um, that is a very long-term protracted refugee scenario. Um, but, you know, Syria is the case, of course, that is getting a lot of news coverage. Um you know, various refugee groups from um, Burma or Myanmar. Um, East Africa has a number of protracted situations, including Somali refugees, um, Ethiopian refugees, South Sudanese refugees, Congolese refugees. Um, You know, there are refugees all over the world. So are there any trends in desired destination countries for refugees, and why would those be chosen? You know, I think for most refugees who are living in refugee camps, especially refugees that are living in protracted scenarios, meaning that they've been long-term displaced, um, I don't know if there is necessarily a desired destination except for a place where you can set down roots and start your life. Um, So refugee camps can be really difficult places to live. Um, So often refugees don't have a really, they want to be somewhere that's safe. They want to be somewhere where their kids can go to school. They want to be somewhere where they can work and they want to be somewhere where they don't have to fear for their lives. So, um, you know, those kind of desires, you know, there are lots of places that can fit the bill for that. But as far as the number of or the countries that take in refugees, um, that's changing a little bit. So as the Trump administration has implemented what's commonly known as the travel ban or the Muslim ban and, um, 
the overall refugee ceiling in the country has decreased significantly. Um, other countries have kind of risen to become um, larger resettlement countries, Canada most notably, but other countries, Australia to some extent, um, New Zealand to some extent, um, you know, also receive refugees in a resettlement scenario. And there are, of course, lots of countries that receive um, refugees through the asylum process. Um, so you talked a little bit about refugee camps. Mm -hmm. um, is that primarily the place that refugees go while waiting to be resettled or hopefully um, if they do end up being resettled? So right now, less than one half of one percent of all refugees have an opportunity for resettlement. So it's a very small number of people who ever get the opportunity to come to the U.S. or Canada or, you know, any other kind of third country is what it's called. But um, what actual refugee camp hosting looks like varies a lot from country to country. In my work in Tanzania, Tanzania has been um, a long-term host of refugees. So actually, since it was a German or British colonial country um, or state, it has hosted refugees and it has hosted refugees in very, very high numbers for a very, very long time since the 1960s. So, you know, in Tanzania, encampment um, looks very, very different than it does, say, um, if we look at, I mean, really anywhere else, Jordan, if we look at Turkey, um, the refugee camps are just different, um, meaning that the, the laws that the countries have about how refugees can travel, when they can travel, what that travel looks like, the kinds of activities you can do in a refugee camp. So in, for instance, in some countries, you can have a business or you can garden or you can farm in a refugee camp. In other countries, you cannot, not only because of the laws of the country, but also the kinds of terrains that refugee camps tend to be in. In other countries, they opt instead of for kind of a formal camp model, they do more urban hosting. And so that means that refugees often get permits where they can move more freely within urban spaces um, and live um, lives that may be more similar to what they were used to at home um, versus the kind of sitting, waiting, watching kind of model of a refugee camp. Are there any problems you see with the current system as it relates to refugee camps. I know you said that there's a lot of variability between countries, but in general. Oh, in general. I mean, I think funding is always an issue. Um, and so the, the majority of the world's refugees are hosted in the global south. So primarily within developing countries that may not have a lot of extra room in um, a national budget for something like refugee hosting. And so they rely heavily upon the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees or UNHCR um, to fund um, refugee camp programs or to kind of um, provide support within that arena. So, um, you know, they're just Right now, especially with the increase in refugees worldwide, there's just not the money to fund um, all of the services that people would really need to live, um, you know, um, healthy and robust lives. So you said that less than one half of one percent ever get resettled. What are the primary reasons or obstacles that are preventing them from being resettled? Yeah, so resettlement requires countries that are willing to engage in resettlement. So just like the United uh, the United States has um, cut back what's called the refugee ceiling or the total number of people that we process um, and um, designate for resettlement every year. Um, it is just something that not a lot of countries engage in. It is something that when countries do engage in it, it's a fairly small number of people each year. So, you know, this year, I think, um, you know, the ceiling, if we reach the ceiling, we will be fortunate. But, um, you know, in best case scenario, we're looking at probably about 20,000 people. 
So that's a very small number of people. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the number of um, displaced or stateless people in the world who would need an opportunity for resettlement, there just aren't enough slots, but there are lots of people. So the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees often will reach out to countries to see if they can, um, you know, work out alternative arrangements. So sometimes that means local integration. Um, these are considered durable solutions. So resettlement, um, local integration, which is when a host country allows refugees to stay in the country in which they were previously like in a refugee camp um, and give them often citizenship or repatriation. And repatriation is facilitating the process of returning home if and when that's possible. Um, and unfortunately, often that's just not possible for many people as well. What are some general themes that you see in modern refugee patterns? So I guess a general trend that's emerging is that the definition of refugee is growing to some degree. Um, and so in some ways, that's because we are recognizing um, forms of persecution that otherwise were kind of hidden or normalized. So I'm thinking here of um, the persecution of people uh, or of LGBTQ refugees who previously, you know, that wasn't really a, a characteristic that allowed you or an identity that allowed for resettlement where more countries, more host countries are recognizing that that, that is in fact something that a lot of people face, right? Is persecution mm -hmm. because of, um, you know, various identity um, uh identities that, um, in fact, in the United States were accepted or acceptable kind of broadly not that long ago. Mm -hmm. um, so that expansion is, I think, really important to that to expand um, those forms of protections um, not only aligns with our own kind of national values as we've kind of expanded definitions of marriage and expanded kind of social norms and definitions, um, but to also kind of provide those legal protections as well. Um, other examples, um, might include, um, oh, definitions of persecution kind of as an act. So uh, right now, um, you know, there is a lot of debate about people who are seeking asylum at the southern border. And one of the critiques is about um, that many of them are fleeing gang violence. And so there's this question of, well, what does it what does it mean to flee gang violence? And how do definitions of gang violence fit into national definitions of persecution? Um, and so there, you know, the United Nations has been pretty open that, of course, you know, gang where gangs end and states um, begin are not always clearly um, demarcated. And so that it's important to recognize that any form of persecution, um, you know, can disadvantage people and put their lives at risk. Um, so you've mentioned twice now the difference between refugee and asylum seeker. So what's the difference in like uh -huh. definitionally and like the process? Yeah. So um, refugees and asylum seekers are essentially the same category. So um, in the United States, one of the things that we differentiate a lot is the resettlement process, which is when people are refugees, they've already been granted asylum. They've been living often in refugee camps. Then the U.S. government goes abroad interviews them, identifies people who can be resettled in the United States, and then physically brings them here. And that's refugee resettlement. Asylum is when people come to um, a national border and say, help me, I can't return home. Um, you know, I have experienced this form of persecution, and they kind of lay out their case. So refugees, so when people are granted asylum, they get refugee status. So they are essentially the same, you know, two coins or two sides of the same coin rather. Um, but in the United States, because of the way that our resettlement policy has worked, we often differentiate between asylees and refugees, where in most places in the world, asylee is not 
um, a proper noun, right? Um, everybody's just considered a refugee. In fact, if you use the term asylee in Microsoft Word, it will reject it. It's, you know, does not identify it. So, so with your experience in Tanzania, could you maybe give a brief explanation about uh, why you went there and, and what you did while you were there? Sure. So I first went to um, Tanzania as an undergraduate student. So I directly enrolled at the University of Dar es Salaam as part of a study abroad experience. Um, and while I was there, there was an American Fulbright professor who was also spending the year there who had previously worked in um, Tanzanian refugee camps during the Rwandan genocide. And so he was doing research. He had a lot of experience working with refugees in Tanzania. Um, and he kind of took me under his wing and, um, you know, taught me a lot about refugee hosting um, policy in Tanzania and kind of helped encourage my interest in refugees. So then um, I went back home. I graduated from college and I took a job working in refugee resettlement. So my first job was working in San Diego with the International Rescue Committee, working with um, a Somali a refugee community, a minority refugee community. And um, I loved that job. It was awesome. It was really, you know, inspired a lot more questions um, for me about kind of, you know, what were the experiences that people had before they arrived in the United States that we often kind of overlook because we're so focused on kind of welcoming people to America with, well, forgetting that people are leaving a lot behind. Um, then, um, I ended up getting married and my husband had a Fulbright in Tanzania. So I asked a transfer to, um, the Dar es Salaam office and I worked, um, there doing more stuff in refugee camps for a while. Um, and then realized that, but it was, um, much more kind of, um, number crunching work and not a lot of interaction with refugees. And I missed that. And so I applied for a Fulbright and got one. And so we spent another two years in Tanzania um, as I did my research. Um, and I was looking at uh, the resettlement in Tanzania of Somalis. And so it's um, a Somali refugee community. Their ancestors were taken as slaves from Tanzania to Somalia about 200 years ago. And then they were granted resettlement in Tanzania as refugees because of their ethnic identity and their history as slaves originating in Tanzania. And so I studied that resettlement process, um, giving people or giving refugees in particular citizenship on the basis of ethnicity is fairly rare. And so I was studying that process. Um, and so at the end of those two years, I realized that if I really wanted to continue to do research, which is what I thought I did, um, then I needed to go back and get a PhD. So I went to grad school and did my PhD in sociology um, and continued to work in Tanzania and then also started looking at stuff here in the United States along resettlement. Mm -hmm. So with all that experience, was there any one interaction one-on-one um, -on -one or either with a group of refugees that really stuck out to you or really made an impact on you? You know, I don't know if it's one interaction per se, but um, the community that I work with in Tanzania, um, I was kind of connected with that community because they were the relatives of my former clients working in San Diego. So it's one extended family. So in fact, my very first client in San Diego, his nephew is my research assistant in Tanzania. Um, and so being able to look at one extended family across the world, um, you know, and not just in Tanzania, I've also done some work in Kenya and then in Somalia. So looking at that extended family um, and 
you know, also extended community and thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be separated from your family? What does it mean to continue kind of family life when you may live very far away from your children or from your parents or from your nieces and nephews, et cetera? Um, that has really stuck out to me and it's been really an important part of my life. So I don't know if that, that's not a single interaction, but, um, you know, that family has really, really shaped, um, you know, my life. So we noted um, that ex makes sense if you um, have that personal experience, but we noticed that a lot of your research talks about the family dynamics of um, separated families. Could you talk about like what those dynamics look like, what the effects are? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I think one of the things about being a sociologist is that you start to question um, things that are otherwise considered normal parts of daily life, right? So mm -hmm. sociologists like to unpack that and think about where those things originate and how those things, how those things become normalized within daily life. And so thinking about um, some of my research is on ritual. Um, and so um, I think in the piece that you are mentioning, it's about um, a case of healing after breast cancer or during breast cancer treatment. And so for a woman who was diagnosed with breast cancer immediately after resettlement in the United States, it's a question both of how do refugees who are used to a different concept of body and a different kind of understanding of health, how do you make sense of the American healthcare system mm -hmm. and insurance and the biomedical model and everything like that? And so um, the, that case looks at like how families engage in these questions transnationally. And so it's about partially about kind of healing rituals and about trying to explain um, new healthcare definitions and hospital experiences um, through that process. We also noticed the concept of the violence of uncertainty in your research. Could you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So that piece was um, came out in the New England Journal of Medicine in September. And it is um, concerned with how immigration policy affects healthcare access. And not just healthcare access, but also other institutions, the social determinants determinants of health. So how things like education and everything else kind of multiply and play into the healthcare access process. So um, Dr. Bass, who's at the Carolina Survivors Clinic and the USC Med School, and Ben Roth, who's um, in the College of Social Work, and I wrote this piece, and um, it's a theory piece. And so one of the things that we all notice, we all work with very different immigrant and refugee communities, um, although Dr. Bass and I have some overlap. Um, but looking at how as the social dynamics in this country change because of changes in immigration policy, um, how that's affecting, you know, refugee and immigrant lives on a daily basis. So to give you some kind of more concrete examples, um, hospitals are increasingly becoming sites of deportation. So when um, immigrants um are undocumented or refugees um, often will fall out of status, meaning um, they come in as refugee status is a legal form of documentation, but they may lose that if they can't afford to apply for a green card, for instance, or um, et cetera, things like that. Um, so even if they have status, they're increasingly nervous that ICE will be present in hospitals because hospitals have sometimes joined um, with ICE um, that has 
schools increasingly question um, immigration status. It becomes sites where immigrant children or refugee children do not always feel safe or their parents become hesitant to send them to school. Um, and so, yeah, this paper looks at, you know, what are the long-term potential outcomes of that? And how can we think about the ways in which uncertainty um, is actually a form of what, you know, academics call structural violence or the ways in which um, having access to resources or institutions um, can be affected by inequality and essentially lead to poor outcomes because of a lack of access. We talked about a little bit about the violence of uncertainty and then um, also about maintaining those relationships uh, with family back home. Mm-hmm. What are some of the biggest maybe challenges um, that refugees face when they're resettled and integrated as part of society? Um, What are some of the more notable or more important um, issues or challenges that they face? So I think language is a a big challenge. And I think um, students who've studied abroad can relate to that experience, right? Where you are suddenly forced to navigate a complex society without um, the basic tools to interact with people. Um, And so, you know, language can be a big challenge. One of the problems um, right now with U.S. refugee resettlement policy is that um, language becomes a secondary secondary resettlement objective um, to job placement. So refugees are expected to get jobs first, learn English second. But of course, we all know that (laughs) Um, language is really important to having a job. Um, And so... um, you know, language access becomes um, a really big key to refugee success in the U.S., um, and it's not funded and it's not prioritized in a meaningful way. So that can um, be a huge challenge for people. Now, of course, some refugees come to the U.S. and they know English already, and they have that advantage. But there are um, so many other forms of communication um, that you also have to learn, right? I think also students who have studied abroad can relate to this, that when you, um, you know, uh, um, need to learn local dialects or local uh, accents, um, that when you need to learn kind of the ways, the social expectations about how you ask for things or who you ask for things or how you can make demands of different people or not, Um, you know, those things are all kind of a challenge, I think, for refugees where they're like, you know, I need to get a driver's license. Where, right? (laughs) Because every country kind of arranges society differently in that way, um, bureaucratically. Um, And so those things are all challenges. Um, You know, other refugees face, or refugees face other challenges based on some of the other kind of identity stuff. So as we've seen a rise, they in the article, The Violence of Uncertainty, one of the things that we highlight is that there's been a significant rise in hate crimes against immigrants and especially against Muslim immigrants. So for Muslim Muslim immigrants, um, that has really, um, I think, shaped a lot of their experience in the U.S., both because people are talking to their family members before they come. Um, and so people anticipate it and fear it. Um, and, you know, it is... Uh, is a reality for people. And it's an unfortunate reality that I think um, as American citizens, we can help combat by, you know, calling into question, um, you know, all forms of xenophobia, but especially Islamophobia. Um, With your experience 
um, not only with refugees, but interacting with people who may represent maybe the general public's idea of refugees mm -hmm. or, or their, the extent of their knowledge. What are the most important things um, that you think maybe the general public should know that you don't think um, are general knowledge? Yeah, I think one of the really big misconceptions that's out there right now is that there is some sort of relationship between the idea of a refugee and the idea of a terrorist, right? So lots of times you will hear people talk about refugees as terrorists, which is incredibly problematic and probably leads to the, the some of the xenophobia that we were just discussing. Um, and so, of course, you know, if, if we look at this from a risk standpoint or if we look at this statistically, um, there is no relationship between the two things. Um, refugees are much less likely to commit crimes and most definitely less likely to commit crimes of terrorism than any other group. So, um, you know, that is just not something to be concerned about. However, the way that refugees are talked about continues to kind of perpetuate that myth in ways that unfortunately closes a lot of doors for Americans who, you know, start to fear something that really is not a risk to them or to their lives. Um, and in fact, refugees, of course, are fleeing violence often themselves. And so um, it they are often fleeing, you know, very personal experiences of terrorism where they themselves have been targeted um, or have lost family members or children or experienced torture. Um, and so it, it is a really um, problematic kind of stereotype that's out there um, that is just not based in reality. Um, so what is some of the focus on some of the things that you're working on right now with refugees? Yeah, so right now I am looking at... Um, I'm looking at torture. <laughs> and, um, you know, we know, we as scholars know a lot about kind of the psychological effects of torture. Um, and, you know, in the field of international relations, there is a lot of research on kind of torture and regimes and, you know, when do states... Um, use torture, why do they use torture, how do they use torture, etc. But I'm more interested in, so for refugees who have experienced torture, how does, especially at the hands of the state, how does that shape their engagement with states moving forward? So of course you can, um, if, you know, trying to put yourself in their shoes a little bit, if you think about, you know, a state, your government tortures you because of your political identity. Well, what does that mean for things like voter registration once you become a citizen? How, if you were tortured at the hands of the police in your home country, what does that mean when you have to engage with police in resettlement? And how does that shape your understanding of um, the role of the police, when you should be concerned, your sense of safety, etc.? So those are some of the questions that I'm looking at right now. It's a new project. I just started it. So um, I don't have a lot of um, exciting data for you yet, but um, those are some of the research questions that are guiding me right now. All of your um, research or experience with refugees so far, is there anything that's been like most interesting to you or most eye-opening to you that you think should be shared? Oh, wow. Um, let's see. You know, I think the thing that has been most eye-opening to me and that has, you know, then consequence consequentially really guided my research is that there is sometimes a disconnect between um, the way that 
refugees experience resettlement or experience kind of programming on their behalf and the way that that's designed. So because I worked in refugee camps and because I worked in resettlement, um, I have spent a lot of time around kind of Americans who spend a lot of time of thinking about policy and thinking about how to design programs and how to make things um, accessible for refugees. But most of my research um, spends a lot of time asking qu refugees questions about those processes and what they like and what they don't like and what's difficult and what do they do when things fail, et cetera. And there's a huge disconnect between that. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, the thing that surprises me is just um, how often refugees are not necessarily consulted about their, you know, things that directly impact their own lives and the way that we kind of infantilize refugees as a community, right, or pity them without seeing them as, um, you know, complex human beings who have survived really, really, um, you know, unimaginable um, persecution often and have overcome significant um, obstacles in order to arrive here and start their lives over. Um, and so seeing them as people who are just in need of pity instead of people who have a lot to contribute to our society, who have a lot of own their own ideas about how the world works, have really important insights into um, kind of geopolitical events. Um, that's one of the things that has really surprised me. Um, so what do you think that refugees would like to see um, policy change wise so like if if we were to start viewing them as complex human beings and let them speak on the policy what do you think they would oh that's what done question. so um I, you know i think it varies a little bit by geography and by person obviously but i think that um you know one of the things that i hear almost universally is just how difficult family reunification can be so um you know refugees who are applying to bring their family members over to the United States. Um, and sometimes, uh, so to give you an example, when I worked in refugee resettlement, I had a client who was from Liberia um, and she was at work one day. She was, um, let's say, a low-level civil servant and her two kids were at home with her mother and she had twin infants. And um, the town she was living in was attacked and her mom fled with the two infants and she fled somewhere else. And they ended up living apart, and she was in a refugee camp for about no, 15 years um, and never knew what happened to her kids, never knew what happened to her mother, just assumed that they died. And so she was given the opportunity for resettlement in the U.S., and she did it hesitantly. She was very, very um, sure that her, you know, hopeful, I guess is the better word, that her children were still alive, but just didn't know. She came to the U.S. and after a year received word um, from the Red Cross that they had found her children, um, that her children had both um, essentially became child soldiers at one point, um, and that um, they had just um, been found in a neighboring country. And so, you know, it, it still took a significant amount of time for her to be reunited with her, her children, um, after all of that. And so watching her go through, you know, both the bureaucratic process of filling out more paperwork than you could ever imagine, and then trying to find, make sure that her children had all of the psychological and social services that they need, needed when they were coming to the U.S. and the support and the money and everything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a really significant undertaking. Um, so, you know, family reunification is probably the biggest thing that refugees would like to see changed, although they're 
surely are many, many things. Um, is this story like, like this one, for example, is that common among many refugees? Is that yeah, family separation is very, very common. Um, and the family separation, not only between like parents and their children, but, you know, your, your um, grandparents or aunts and uncles, you know, everybody wants a life where they can, you know, be around their family members, be with the people they love, know that the people that they love are secure, happy, you know, can lead you know, the lives that they want to can live to their full, full potential. And so, um, you know, refugees are no different in that sense. Um, but policy makes it incredibly difficult. Um, so obviously it could vary depending on how long you don't know about family, but from the point of finding out that your family is alive, what would the average time, if you could give an estimate for how long that process takes? Oh, I don't even know off the no. top of my head. Mm -mm, I don't know. Um, I can tell you that, um, this is not about family reunification, but when I worked in refugee resettlement, um, my client had spent on average, or on average, my clients had spent 23 years in refugee camps before being selected for resettlement in the United States. So for many of them, that was, you know, their entire life or mm -hmm. um, um, most of their, you know, kind of cognizant life. Yeah. Um, so, and you can answer this question any way you choose to, but... Um, who are refugees? Oh, man, that is a big question. Uh, refugees are individuals who have had to negotiate significant kind of personal experiences of loss and persecution and violence, who have had to negotiate complex kind of global systems and bureaucracies, people who have had to figure out often on the fly, how a new country, how a new language, how a new culture works. There are people who have had to kind of learn to endure xenophobia um, or other forms of discrimination um, and not lose hope that what they are doing or what they are seeking, you know, primarily safety is still possible. Um, there are people who, um, you know, are resilient and you know, simultaneously, just like any of us, meaning that, you know, they have hopes and dreams and want to go to school and have jobs and have families. And um, sometimes I think when I talk about refugees to big groups, um, people will, pick, you know, again, return to that idea of like people who should just be pitied. Um, or people who, you know, have overcome such sad things that it's just like a depressing scenario, like the huddled masses kind of idea. And yes, that's true. But that's also true alongside of people who are incredibly funny, who, um, you know, working on this torture project right now, people will often ask me, like, how do you think about torture all the time? Don't you just hear horrific things? And yes, I do. But I also hear horrific things told through funny stories. I hear like women who, you know, often interview women who will do like hilarious impersonations of the political leaders who authorize their torture, right? Of they make fun of their neighbors, they joke around, they laugh with their children, they, you know, celebrate birthdays. So, um, you know, there's like this tension, I think, that um, the way that we talk about refugees in this country doesn't leave a lot of room um, for people to be complex, for people to be simultaneously very resilient and able to 
endure horrible things while also being really human and really just like you, right? Um, and so that's, yeah, I think who refugees are, if they're anything. They're, they are people like you, but they're also people um, who have had to negotiate things that you've never, ever imagined. And um, with so with the um, the misconceptions, obviously that we talked about, and then that popular attitude of of, of pity mm-hmm. rather than um, you know the more complex reality of everything. Mm-hmm. What maybe steps or what ideas do you have for ways that ways to increase maybe the pu- public's knowledge or understanding of of the complexity of refugees and of who they are, as well as combating those popular misconceptions that many people have? Yeah. I mean, strategies for combating some of these ideas, um, you know, I will say this, that is not my area of expertise. I am not necessarily good at that. (laughs) Um, But I, I will say, you know, I, I can point out examples that people are trying that and I don't know why it's falling short. So for instance, um, I'm teaching a class right now on refuge and refugees and students have to read um, a a biography written by a refugee about their own experience. So if you go on Amazon, you know, there are literally thousands of biographies of refugees about their experience that portray exactly this, right? They are, you know, people's own stories, own telling about the complexity of their own lives. Um, So those things are out there. If you look at, you know, some of the agencies that engage in advocacy for refugee populations, you know, um, they do try to capture that complexity, but I think sometimes they do it in ways um, that do not feel relatable. So for instance, um, I have a poster that I was given by um, a UNHCR official on the wall of my office that says like, Einstein too was a refugee. I mean, yeah, he was, right? But like, I don't really relate to Einstein, right? (laughs) Um, And then on the other hand, you know, um, I have another poster right next to it that's like a picture of a refugee camp that I received from the same person um, that is like, you know, just tent after tent um, in an African refugee camp. And I lived in African refugee camps. I know what they look like, um, but I also don't relate to that. Um, And so I think sometimes when we try to shoot too high or too low, um, if that makes sense or, you know, you should pity, this is sad, or um, I, uh, refugees are all brilliant, right? That misses the mark in some ways that in fact, kind of um, the fact that, you know, refugees are more likely your neighbors. And, you know, when I talked to the refugee class last year, on the last day of class, several of my students came for it and were like, I was afraid to tell you this, but, you know, my family came from Bosnia like we were refugees and somebody else is like well I wasn't a refugee but my parents came to America as refugees before I was born Um, and other people you know had their own kind of refugee stories Um, and so I think that you know by opening the dialogue about that that you know refugees aren't um, you know this abstract idea of either pity or Einstein or anything else but you know often they're your neighbors they're the people that you run into at the grocery store um um, you know if we could create the social space where people didn't have to fear xenophobia where they didn't have to fear disclosing that um you know we might be able to have a different conversation about this thank you dr grace for coming in and uh talking to us today um 
I know that, um, speaking for myself, but I'm sure Aiden as well um, learned a lot um, going forward. Thank you. That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for putting together this important podcast. I'm really excited about this and I promise to subscribe and, and encourage everyone else to too. Thank you so much for listening to Seeking Refuge. If you have a story you'd like to share, get in touch with us by sending us an email at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Seeking Refuge Podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to Dr. Brian Grace for being on the show this week. Our show wouldn't be made possible without the wonderful support from Maxie International House at the University of South Carolina. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode.